Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this calling that you placed upon our lives that we could actually know you, be known by you, and enter into an eternal relationship, fellowship with you. This is our treasure. This is not a sideline. This is the most important thing. It is the meaning of life itself. So, Lord, I pray that you would impress that upon us tonight as we open your word and study this session. And that, Lord, ultimately, we would all know you, the one true God in Jesus whom you have sent. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Week number eight. We're rolling along. Got 12. We're eight of 12. Um, the session tonight is called Adjusting Your Life to God. How many of you like to make adjustments in your life? Almost nobody. We get set in our ways. We get set in our comfort zones. And this will deal with that tonight. Before we get into day number one, let's read the scripture for the week. Luke 14, Jesus says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Is that hard to understand? You have to be able to willing, you have to be willing to give up everything that you have. What does that really mean? Let's put it in perspective, because if you don't put this in perspective, you're never going to be able to process this session tonight. You need to be able to weigh on a scale who he is and what the world can offer you. You need to be able to weigh them on a scale. You have to be able to know that his, the value of knowing him is greater than anything the world could possibly give you, and it wins. That no matter what you might have the opportunity to gain in this world, it's meaningless without life. If you're dead, what good stuff? What good's anything? And life comes only from the life giver. So he says, any of, any of you who does not give up everything, everything, you cannot be my disciple. You can't follow him until you're willing to come to grips with the idea of the value of knowing Christ. What, what's the value? It's infinite. It's infinite. That's what this means. So day number one, uh, the title was Adjustments Are Necessary. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. I want to change that a little bit. I'm going to add something to it. You cannot stay where you are. I want to say you cannot stay as you are. This is not a geographical issue. It's not about whether or not you got to move. I mean, you may be right where you're supposed to be and you don't need to move. What you cannot do is stay as you are. Something's going to change. Many of us want God to speak to us and give us an assignment. However, we're not interested in making major adjustments in our lives. Biblically, that position is impossible. The very fact that you have encountered God means something's about to happen. Something's going to change. Adjusting your life to God is the second critical turning point in your knowing and doing the will of God. If you choose to make that adjustment, you can move on to obedience. If you refuse to make that adjustment, you will miss what God has in store for your life. So, let me, let me put it in perspective. You've had an encounter with God. That encounter with God means that somehow now I have to adjust from my previous position. I don't ask it to adjust to me. I adjust to it, to him. It is a him. Shouldn't use the word it. I'm going to adjust to him. If I'm willing to make that adjustment, then obedience becomes the next step. Now the door opens to obey him. But not until I'm willing to adjust my life and count the cost. i got to count the cost, right? Is it worth it following him? If I refuse to make that adjustment, everybody needs to hear this. 
If you refuse in that moment to adjust your life to the calling of God, there is a strong possibility. Maybe you'll get a second chance. Jonah got a second chance. Go to Nineveh. No, I'm going to Tarsus. He got a second chance. Do you really want to do it Jonah's way? Huh? Do you want to get swallowed by a giant fish and get vomited up on the beach? Huh? Just do it his way the first time. You'll save all the vomit, fish vomit. Can you imagine how that would feel? Reality number five. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith in action. This is part of the crisis of belief. What is? I must believe God and take action to follow him. I can't stay where I'm at. I can't stay as I am. When I encounter the living God, something about my life will change. It'll be transformed. To fight that, to resist that, is to resist God. We cannot continue life as usual and stay where we are or as we are and go with God at the same time. Noah had to adjust his life to follow God. This is true for all of God's servants. Go down the list. Read the Bible. Abraham, Moses, David, Amos, Jonah, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Paul. Did any of those guys, were any of those guys able to remain as they were after they encountered God? No. No. In fact, there was radical change in their lives. This is the crisis. A major adjustment will be required to align your life with God. So, great leadership, I've always heard, is never asking somebody to do what you're not willing to do yourself. Great leadership. Jesus is the ultimate great leader. Let's read about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. Do you think Jesus had to make an adjustment? He's, he's the son of God. He dwells in the heavenly realms. And God says to him that today you have become my son. I have become your father. And he sends him on a mission to the earth, wrapped in God wrapped in human flesh to become poor so that you and I might become rich. He made an adjustment. He became poor even though he was rich. Jesus clearly told us that we must be willing to deny ourselves. What's the problem with making an adjustment? What am I adjusting? Me. I don't want to adjust me. God, I'd like for you to adjust you. I'd like for you to adjust the circumstances around me. I don't want to adjust me. Well, therein lies the problem. Jesus clearly tells us that we must be willing to deny ourselves to follow him. This is not optional for a Christian. This is fundamental to the calling of Christ. This is why the prosperity gospel that's being preached all over America is so contrary to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The prosperity gospel focuses on self, what God can do for me. The true gospel turns it around, and the whole gospel is based upon how might I serve my Lord. You see, they're opposite perspectives. Prosperity gospel says, God, I'm your son. Give me your blessing. The real gospel says, Lord, I am your servant. May it be to me as you have determined. You see the difference? It's opposite. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34... These are the words of Christ. Then calling to the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, this, you know this is an invitation? This is an invitation for Jesus to say, would you like to come with me? Would you like to be a part of me? Would you like to encounter me? Would you like to experience me? If any of you wants to be my followers, you must did you notice the word must? You must. There's not going to be another way around it. You must turn from your selfish way. You must turn from your self-centered life. Take up a cross and follow me. What does it mean? 
turn from your self-centered life. What does it mean to take up a cross? Does that mean you go out and grab a wooden beam and carry it around? Is that what it means? What, is, what does it mean? You must. You know, we really ought to know what this means. If you're going to follow Christ, you must deny yourself, your self-centered life. You got to think about, you got to put him first rather than you first. But what's taking up a cross? What did it mean for Jesus? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You receive the assignment of the Father. There's a verse in the Bible that I've actually started using in my own prayer life. Jesus says, I brought you glory, Father, on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. How did Jesus bring glory to God? He says, I brought you glory on the earth, Father, by completing the work, the assignment that you gave me to do. What was the assignment? The cross. Can anybody find an application in this room tonight? I want to be able on the last day say, Lord, I brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What is it? Terry, take up the cross. That's the work of God, whatever it is. In Jesus' case, it was the crucifixion. In my case, maybe it's something else. In your case, it'll be something else. But it won't be your will. It'll be his will. The cross is his assignment. Well, Jesus say, my father is at work now, and he's always working. And I, too, am now working. Well, well there's, there, he's doing something. He's redeeming the world. He's revealing himself to the planet. And he's wanting people to come alongside of him. And to do that, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up this cross. And everybody understands something. The cross that he gives you will probably be different than the one he gives me that he gives to you. It's the assignment of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the manifestation of his presence in your life. We're all different parts of the body. We'll have different roles, different functions, different purposes, different callings. But the cross is that calling. And then what? And then follow me. Why? Verse 35. What if I don't? <laughs> if you try to hang on to your life, what's, what do you mean? If you refuse to stop your self-centered life, if you refuse the cross, if you, you know what that is? It's trying to hang on to your life. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life, anybody see the issue of absolute, total, unconditional, white flag up the pole surrender? It's here. This is it. But if you give up your life for my sake, and there's two points in here. If you give up your life for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. My sake and the good news. I want to translate that for my name and the word. The name and the word. If you'll give up your name, if your life's purpose will be to, to promote the name Jesus in this. That's what he just said. Do you think you'll have to make adjustments in your life to do those two things? <laughs> you better believe it. You walk out into this culture carrying those two and see what happens. Somebody's going to adjust. Because the world has already rejected both of them. And we cannot. We surely cannot. Until you're ready to make any change. Listen. We don't have time for games. Until you're ready to make any change necessary to follow and obey what God has said. You will be of little use to God. Does that sound harsh? Maybe you would like to have Christianity light. I don't want the dark roast version of Christianity. I like the light roast, where I can just give up a little bit. I don't want to give up everything. I'd like to just give up what I'm really not using, my extras, some free time. I'll get to you on Sunday. Until you're willing to make any change necessary to follow and obey what God has said, you're very little use to God. Your greatest single difficulty in following God may be this point right here, fully surrendered. Could you, let's stop for a moment. 
Is it possible that you think you're fully surrendered and you're not? It's just a question. And if I went around the room tonight, and I'm not going to, and ask you individually, are you fully surrendered anything, everything? There is nothing that he could ask you to do that you would not be willing to do. To quit your job, to move, to give away all of your wealth, to do anything. Are you okay with that? How do we start tonight? You must measure on the scale. What is the value of knowing Christ? And what is the value of that stuff that you're reluctant to let go of? Which one is heavier? Which one's more valuable? You see, we tend to want to skip making adjustments and go directly to believing God to obedience. I don't really want to make any adjustments. If you want to follow him, you don't have a choice. His ways are different than ours, and the only way to follow him is for us to make the adjustment, not him. Don't ask God to adjust to you. He's God. Notice what happens. So let's go look at some Old Testament examples. And you know what? The, the mere fact that we're 4,000 years later talking about these guys tells you what happens when you do it God's way. So let's study about, just for a moment, about Elijah and Elisha. Now let me kind of set it up. Elijah is at the end of his ministry. He's had his encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel. He's, he's encountered, uh, he, he went to a broom tree, wished he could die because Jezebel was going to kill him. He's called to the mountain of God and he says, I'm the only one left and they're going to kill me. And God says, you're not the only one left. There's 7,000 and I'm not done with you. You're going to do these last few things and then I'm going to come and get you. Whoa. And then I'm going to come and get you. What? Yeah, I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to come and pick you up. You're not going to die. So he goes and he, he says, whoa, you're talking about refreshing. That's a refreshing meeting with God. So he goes and he's been told by God that your replacer will be a man named Elisha. So let's read it. First Kings 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. Must have been a big time farmer because he's got 12 yoke ox and I think that's like a big John Deere tractor with a cab today. <laughs> there were 12 teams of oxen in the field and Elijah was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to Elisha and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. What did the cloak mean? It's the mantle. It's the calling of God. God has told Elijah pitch this calling upon him. Give it to him. Ooh, what if it's heavy? Give it to him. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye. Sounds reasonable to me. And then I'll go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha must have thought about it. What did he just ask? Let me go settle my family affairs. Let me settle up with mom and daddy. So go on back and think about what I've asked of you. So Elijah returned to his oxen and he slaughtered them. There's 12 of them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire and roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. And then he went with Elijah as his assistant. What did he do? No turning back. You know what he did when he killed those oxen? You ain't going back. You burned your tractor. There's no returning to the farm. There's no, this is, it, it, he's all in. Anybody, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up a cross to follow me. Elijah had pitched this mantle upon this man. It's heavy, this calling of God. Ask Elijah. It's heavy. 
You must deny yourself. Take up this assignment, this cross. Follow me. Elisha was all in. No half-hearted response to God. He's willing to do whatever it takes to adjust his life to the calling of God. Do you think we serve a different God than Elisha? Do we serve a different God than Elijah? Are you, I'm, all right, now I'm going to be personal. Don't answer out loud. Are you all in? Are you? You think it's going to matter? Do you think God can tell? You see, I can't tell. You could fake me out, probably. There's nobody faking God out right now. Are you all in? Compare that Elisha story to this one in the time of Jesus. That was Old Testament. Let's go to New Testament. One of the religious leaders asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Who doesn't want to know the answer to that one? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. And let me put something in. Are you, are you calling me God? Do you know who I am? But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed, I've carefully obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Now put that in, before we go on, I want you to put this in light of tonight's conversation. There's something missing. You haven't made the adjustment. You haven't done it. You're not all in. There's still something you haven't done. Sell all your possessions. Kill your 12 oxen. That's what he's saying. Burn your tractor. Sell all your possessions. Give the, poor, give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. So in this moment, you know what's happening? There's a weighing of the scale. Remember? He's weighing in the scale. You can have treasure in heaven. Woo, that's heavy. That's worth a lot. Well, but I've got a lot of money. I'd have to give all that away to the poor. Ooh. You know what he's finding out? What he believes to be true about God. So how much is treasure in heaven worth? How much are 12 oxen worth? Which one's worth more? Which one lasts longer? Which one lasts forever? Huh. Then come follow me. Why can't I follow you and then sell my possessions? Anybody hearing me? Why can't I follow you and then sell my possessions? Wouldn't that make more sense, Jesus? Just in case this thing doesn't work out, I've got something to go back to. No, kill your oxen. All right, you ready for this? Because here it comes. But when the man heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. You know what he said to Jesus? No. No. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. I will, I will not make this adjustment in my life. I cannot weigh your promises against my treasure and come up with the idea this is a good deal. So he walks away sad. When Jesus saw this, verse 24, he said, how hard it is for, a rich, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it hard? Why is it harder for a rich guy than a poor guy? Because the scale thing becomes harder to manage. Because when you're really poor, there's not much on this side of the, of the, of the, the, uh, the count balance sheet. You know, there's just not much over here. But when you're really rich, man, that stuff's kind of stacking up and and you got it today. 
But over here, this kingdom of heaven stuff, that seems so far down the road. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world is going to be saved? It's a great question. I imagine his disciples were legitimately thinking, thinking, who's going to make it? Who's going to make it? If this is the criteria, who's going to make it? And Jesus replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. And then here comes Peter. And Peter's a realist in this scene. Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. I got nothing left. And I, I, I believe it's legitimate. Listen, I don't think he had a whole lot when he started but I think what he did have, he has given it all up. He says, we've left our homes to follow you. We burned the oxen. The John Deere tractor is on fire. We ain't going back. Verse 29, yes. Jesus doesn't argue with him, does he? Yes. And I assure you, everybody listen to me. There's going to come a time in your life, you're going to need to hear this next part. And I assure you, because you left that stuff, because you adjusted your life to follow me. You denied yourself. You took up a cross. You took in after me. And, you know, it cost you to do it. But I assure you that everyone who has given up house, wife, brothers, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life. Listen, do you hear me? Not just in heaven, not just in heaven, in this life. And we'll have eternal life in the world to come. So let's do the scale thing. How much is that worth? It's everything. And I'm going to tell you, listen, it's not just everything. If you lose that, you've lost everything. You've got nothing left. You're bankrupt. There you go. That's the reason we make the necessary adjustments in our lives to follow Jesus. Peter and the others gave up everything to follow Jesus, and their lives became part of something eternal. It, what Peter joined in is affecting me tonight in this room. It's affecting you in this room tonight. It's an eternal work of God. We're still being influenced by that event. Day two. What kinds of adjustments are required to position your life to be used by God? You can't imagine. Neither can I. Trying to answer that question is like trying to list all the things that God might ask you to do. The list could be endless. And that's why I said earlier, the take up the cross thing will be very different from me than it'll be for you. It'll be different. Everyone's individual. What he means take up the cross is to receive that which God has placed upon you. Elijah pitched this mantle onto Elisha. God wants to put a mantle upon you, some calling, a purpose upon your life. You'll have to deny yourself before they'll even become possible. And once it becomes, once you deny yourself, receive this mantle, this calling of God, then you'll follow him and your life takes on a whole new meaning. So what are some of the possibilities? I don't think this is kind of practical. Let me go through them quickly. What about changing your circumstances? What about changing your job? You know, that happened to me. What about changing your home, where you live? What about changing your finances? Are, can God get into any of those three categories? You say, no way, buddy. Stay out of that. I'll follow you, but don't you get into my job. Don't get into my home. Don't get into my money. What about relationships? Ooh. Did you notice that when Peter talks to Jesus about, I've given up everything, we give up our home, and Jesus talks about, you got to, what if you give up, you don't got to, so I'm going to be careful there. What if you... What if it costs you your wife or your brothers or your parents or your children? Interesting, isn't it? You mean God ranks above your family? <gasps> yeah, he does. You know why? Because he's God and your children aren't God. In fact, they're little devils most of the time. <laughs> 
Let's be honest. Thinking. Your prejudices. Your methods. Your potential. Your past. You're willing to give all that stuff up? Turn it over to God. These are adjustments, right? Take in to deny yourself. Take up a cross to follow him. These are adjustments that... Are any of those out of bounds? Well, let's keep going. What about commitments to family, to church, to job, to plans, to traditions? Anything out of bounds? What about actions? How you pray? How much time you pray? How much money you give? How much you give away? How much you keep? Is any of that out of bounds? Anybody? That out of bounds? It was. You wouldn't say it out loud. What about your beliefs about God? Maybe your whole life you've been taught to believe certain thing and then you read the Bible and found out it ain't in there. Now what? Now what? What about his ways, your relationship with him? Is anything out of bounds? You see, the mental part of your decision may be the easy part. To bring your mind into agreement with God. That might be the easy part. The hard part is actually adjusting your life to God and taking the action to demonstrate your faith in real life. Not just mentally, not just head knowledge, but actually let your life be adjusted to his good and perfect and pleasing will. Now here comes a big point. God is not looking for ways to make your life difficult. So if you look at all those things we've talked about so far and think, wow, is this a test? He's not looking to make your life difficult. However, he intends to be the Lord of your life. Anybody hear me? He intends to be the master of you. When you identify a place where you refuse to allow his lordship, that is a place he will probably go to work in your life. He is seeking absolute, absolute surrender. God has said about himself, I am a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with another. He, God, wants all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and anything in competition for those four, he wants them moved aside and moved down the ladder of priority in your life. Why? Because he's mean? No, because he loves you. He's jealous. Isaiah 48, 10. Wow, this is powerful. God says, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. I will rescue you for my sake. Yes, for my own sake. I will not let my reputation be tarnished, and I will not share my glory with idols. I will not do it, God says. So all those things that you refuse to lay down that you might have a full relationship with me, I will not share my glory with them. There is no way to go around this issue of total surrender and follow God. Anybody hear me? You, if, you, if you'd like to move on to step C, and this is B... It's not going to happen. You've got to deal with the issue of your heart. Does God have all of it? Yes or no? You must deal with the issue of who has your heart. Remember, these adjustments in your life are not to a religion. They're not to an ideology. These adjustments in your life are to a person. And I want to tell you who he is. He is the creator of the universe. He's the one that speaks the sun into existence from his mouth. And he wants a relationship with you. So to turn him down is to turn down the meaning of life itself. There's a quote in the study from C.T. Studd that says this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to give for him. You know what the question is? If Jesus Christ is God. That's the question. I remember years and years and years ago, I did this sermon series um, um, 
to me, it was one of my favorite I've ever done here, um, I Am. And in that I Am series, I think there were seven of them. Um, in that I Am series, I remember almost every week I would say the same thing. If you're still in your life, still having trouble with this surrender thing, bowing down to this king, there's only one answer. You still don't know who he is. You still, at this point in your life, you still do not know who he is. Because I'm convinced the moment that you know who he is, bowing your life to him will no longer be the issue for you. You don't know who he is. Obedience requires adjustment. Three things are listed. You cannot stay where you are or as you are and go with God at the same time. Number two, obedience is costly to you and to those around you. Number three, obedience requires total dependence on God to work through you. I'm going to tell you, when you take on the mantle of God, when you take up the cross, you will have to depend upon Him because the mantle, the calling, the purpose will be larger than you. And if he doesn't show up, you will fail, but he always shows up. He is faithful. Day number three, obedience is costly. Part number one. You cannot know and do God's will without paying the price of adjustment and obedience. Remember when Jesus talks in the Bible, he says, when you come to me, you must consider the cost. Who is it that would start to build a house and not have enough to finish the house? You'll be mocked. So when you come to deny yourself, take up a cross to follow him, you need to count the cost. So that's why, again, prosperity preachers of the gospel, they sell people short because they don't ever count the cost. They, they're taught prosperity, and when they get in the real life of adversity, they surrender because they feel like God has failed them because the preacher lied to them in the beginning. Jesus said, count the cost. We say Christ is Lord. Right? That's what we say as Christians. And he can interrupt our plans anytime he wants. That's easy talk. That's a hard life. We just don't expect him to do it. What? Lord, you're the Lord of my life. You're the master. Anything you want, I'll do it. You just don't really ever believe he'll really pull the trigger. He'll ever actually do it. We assume he will affirm everything we are doing and never ask us to change anything that we've planned. We assume that what's going to happen is that he's going to come bless us and we're never going to have to live a life that blesses him. And actually, you know what happens in that equation? We're the master, he's the servant. You haven't surrendered to anybody but you. And that's the truth. You see, these adjustments are seemingly against our very nature because our nature is sinful filled with darkness and rebellion apart from Christ this brings up the issue of suffering suffering with Jesus is the adjustment of faith so I want to before I read this next part I want to do something um, the world has rejected Jesus church come to grips with it quit acting like this is a surprise event the world has rejected Jesus. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world has rejected Christ. So what did you think was going to happen when you received Christ? You're, you stand immediately in opposition to the world that has already rejected him. And he's in you. So if he's in you and they've rejected him, they're going to reject you. So just come to grips with it. Just quit acting like, oh, why don't they like us? Why don't they like us? They don't like us because they don't like him. Now, I want to read this. Notice the message of Christ to the Apostle Paul. Acts 9 verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Here he comes. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How would you like to have that calling? Jesus comes. 
knocks on your door, says, I'm going to save your soul. I'm going to send you into heaven with me. And I'm, in the meantime, I'm going to show you how much, just how much you can suffer for my name. Let's have a nice time. Was Jesus just being mean to Paul? Was he getting back at Paul because Paul in the earlier years persecuted the church? He held the jackets while they stoned Stephen. And this is his get back. Is that it? You think? Or let's take a more realistic option. Or was Jesus inviting Paul into a love relationship with him? You see, Paul made some pretty radical adjustments. In fact, if you look at the before and after, you would not know he's the same guy, right? The question is this, and we've got a perspective that is unique. I can look back and answer the question I'm about to ask you. Was it worth it? I will show you how much you will suffer for my name. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, much of his life, at the end of his ministry, he spent in prison. And in fact, eventually, they, they cut his head off. Was it worth it? Here's the scale. Which one? Do you think Paul's the only one who has to do the weighing thing? Do you know you, you and I are weighing? We're doing this right now. Every day of our life we're doing this. Is it worth it? So, here's our unique perspective. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes his conclusion of the matter, answering the question for us so we don't have to guess, was it worth it? Paul says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What, all that suffering? All that prison? What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake, listen, listen, for whose sake I have lost all things. It cost me everything to follow him. I consider them rubbish. What? All that stuff I lost? Here's the scale. You see what he's doing? He's weighing his life. I consider that stuff rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And here he comes, verse 10. I want to know Christ. What's the meaning and purpose of his life? I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What? What? Sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him, even in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. What, what would be the price tag anybody in the room would put on the resurrection of the dead? What's that worth? Thousand dollars? Million dollars? Well, let's put it in time. Would it be worth 10 years of your life to get the resurrection of the dead? Do you understand that the resurrection of the dead is eternal life? It's that you'll never, ever, 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 ever die. Sharing in his sufferings, becoming like Jesus, this is the reward to know him. And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Day number four. Obedience is costly part two. What about when your obedience becomes costly to those around you? <laughs> oh, this is when it gets good. Moses obeyed by adjusting his life to God. And Israelites had to make bricks without straw. They didn't like Moses. Moses obeyed God, did what he told him, and what he did, it brought hardship on the people around him, and they busted Moses. Why did you bring this trouble upon us? When Jesus obeyed God and submitted to the cross, his mother Mary suffered greatly. Would it have been better for him to not made Mary suffer and disregard the cross? What if following Jesus brings suffering and or hardship to your family? And now we're going to get real practical. Everybody listen. We're going to have a real practical application session. What if following Christ brings hardship to your house, to your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, whoever? I loved Henry Blackaby's example of spending time away from his children 
and he was afraid. Him and his wife were both afraid in the story that the impact it would have for his children to be, for, his, for their father to be gone so much ministering. And what would the cost be to the family? And Blackaby writes this, ultimately, all five of our children, black, years later, since God's call to vocational ministry and mission work, and all five are serving in full-time ministry today. Only God could have done such a beautiful work with our children. You can trust God with your family. I would rather entrust my family to God's care than to anyone else in the world. That's what Blackaby said. All five. You see, in the mint, it looked like the decision to follow God would have a negative impact upon his family because he would be gone away from his children so much. But what did God do? All five of his children end up in ministry. Now, this is where I need to tell you something personally. I think I've shared here before that when God was doing his work in my life and I was uh, uh, struggling with whether or not to resign from a vocational, uh, from a secular job, the last thing, the last thing I remember placing on the altar before God was my children. I was terrified being able to provide for my children. I was scared to death because I had three kids under 16. Mathematically, I wasn't sure how I was going to work. Plus, I'm not a preacher. I don't know what I'm doing. What are we going to do? So I, 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 but I remember specifically, I was in a park in Harrodsburg, and I was doing a Bible study during lunchtime. I was still working over there at the time. And God impressed upon me this truth. They were mine before they were yours. That's when he got me. They were mine before they were yours. I resigned after that. Listen, all three of my children are in this church. They are all saved. They are all serving the Lord. None of them have gone wayward. They've given me grandchildren and grandchildren and grandchildren. Who is faithful? God. He's faithful. Day five, total dependence on God. Because ultimately, this is where it all goes anyway. When you are God's servant, you must remain in an intimate relationship with God in order for him to complete his work through you. You must depend upon God alone. Jesus says this. In fact, this goes back to when we first started these sessions, what, eight, eight weeks ago. Jesus says, remain in me. So here I want to do this. Everybody look. This is it. Oh my, this is it. Oh my, this is it. This is me. This is him. Remain in me. You know what he's saying? There will be things in your life that will want to do this. There will be circumstances in your life that will want to do this. They, they, they will just naturally occur. And you'll, you'll pull apart. And here's his teaching. Remain in me, and I'll remain in you. This is a two-part relationship. Terry, remain in me, and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. So I'm a branch, he's a vine, right? No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Complete, listen, complete dependence upon God is this. And the amazing thing to me, and I've got some history in this, the amazing thing is this, even when you don't have a clue, how to produce fruit. He does. Even when you don't know. I don't know how to do that, Lord. I don't have a clue how to do that. He does. He says, if you'll remain in me, I'll remain in you, and you will bear fruit, fruit that will last. Apart from me, you're not going to bear any fruit. So this complete dependence upon God always bears fruit. 
Everything through the vine. Nothing more, nothing less. Everything through the vine. That's becoming part of my daily prayer too after the study. Everything through the vine, Lord. I don't want anything outside the vine. Everything through the vine. Nothing more, nothing less, Lord. Everything through the vine. Galatians 3.20. This is complete dependence upon God versus self. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That's one way of getting rid of self. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. You know what that tells me? He's already determined. He just wants me to believe that he is who he says he is, and he's determined. Did you notice this part? From the east, I summon a bird of prey. He's in charge of creation itself. I need a bird, I'll call a bird. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. I'll get this guy over here uniquely qualified to carry this cross. What I have said, I will bring about. What I have planned, I will do. Well, you know what he wants on, from us? Complete dependence on that sentence. Faith is putting total dependence upon God. Without God at work in you, you can do nothing to produce kingdom fruit. When God purposes to do something, he guarantees it will come to pass. If you depend on anything other than God, you're asking for failure in kingdom's terms. Blackaby gives an example of a church that prayed for God to reveal himself to them. That church sensed that God was leading them to start a bus ministry. They did so, and the church experienced significant growth and experienced God. Other churches saw the success of their bus ministry and started one as well. Their bus ministry failed. Why? It never works. He does. The church wants to rely on it <clears throat> methods. It worked over there. It worked over there. God is not an it. It worked over there. It'll work here. That's not how it works. God works. It doesn't. The method is never the key to accomplish God's purpose. Now listen, I'm not against methods. But methods are, not, are a substitute, a very cheap substitute for operating under a relationship with God. The vine and the branch is not a method. It is a love relationship. It's not a method that produces fruit. What produces fruit is the love between God and His servant. If you leave the relationship with God to go after a method or a program, this is equal to spiritual adultery. Why? I want you to picture this in your mind. You have connected yourself to the wrong vine. The vine became a method. You disconnected yourself from the true vine, which is the person of Christ, and connected yourself to some methodology, which is spiritual idolatry, adultery. Good books, I read a lot of them. Successful methods, I study some of them. Creative programs and other successes cannot take the place of your relationship with God. They never do the work. God does the work. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Sometimes we must wait. Oh, I'm a terrible waiter. Sometimes we must wait on God. We don't wait in nothingness. When God tells me or tells us or tells the church to wait, that doesn't mean you go into idle. 
It doesn't mean you wait in nothingness. You wait in the fellowship of God, but you don't move out until you receive direction. Let me give you an example. I believe Nineveh Christian Church experienced a powerful word from God on Wednesday, October the 7th, when he revealed two times Jeremiah 7, 16, in front of 206 witnesses. And the question is this, how will we respond? I've often thought about that since that day. Now, I know that that I needed to make some necessary adjustments in my life, how I think in response to that encounter with God that Wednesday night. Now, I've taken those appropriate adjustments. I am even now making appropriate necessary changes, adjustments in my life to align myself with what I heard from God that night. What about you? It's a question. Anybody? What about you? See, I heard that night that, um, well, I can tell you what Jeremiah 7, 16 says, don't pray for for the nation anymore. Even if you beg me, I'm not going to listen to you. Haven't you seen what they're doing? So I'm convinced that at some point, at some time, God's judgment is going to come to the nation that has abandoned his name. I don't know the when and the where, but I'm making necessary changes. So here's, here's where I'm going with this. If you're in the room and maybe you were here that night, maybe you encountered that that night, you saw that that night. If you really believed that was a word from God, I wonder if you've warned anybody. If you've told anybody. Or do you think that's my job? Did you get a word other than, did I get a word you didn't get? Do you bear any responsibility now that the word of God has come and you witnessed it? Maybe you discount it. I think it was just a weird set of coincidences. Okay. All right. That'll be your choice. It won't be mine. What if you heard that from God? And what if it's legitimate? And what if God revealed himself that night? Well, are there people in your life that maybe you ought to be talking to? That you ought to adjust yourself and help them adjust themselves to the news that you found out that night? Because I'm having a hard time getting that out of my head. How we respond to the Word of God. You know, it is so easy to read these Old Testament stories. And read about Elisha, and he goes and he slaughters the 12 yoke of oxen. And say, go, Elisha. And we encounter God today and stand here and say, what? Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, why do I read that? This church has been seeking and knocking and asking for a long time. We've we've been seeking after God's heart, after God's will, after God to reveal himself. And then what would you do if he did Or what did you do when you did? Just weird coincidence? Maybe you're in the room and you still don't buy the idea that God speaks to his people in the church age. Well, you'd have a hard time with that because Jesus says that he does. So let's summarize and I'll close. Obedience requires total dependence on God to work through us, through individuals. It 
which is methods or things never works. He does. To depend upon a method is to connect your life to the wrong vine. He will do more through me in days and weeks than I could ever accomplish in years of labor. Waiting on him is always worth the wait. I must believe that what he has led me to pray, he himself will bring to pass. What he has revealed in my time of prayer, he himself will bring it to pass by his power. In verse 5, our church needs to be a praying church. But I'm going to tell you, it would do us no good to pray. If after we pray and he reveals himself, we stand and do nothing in response to that encounter, that word. One way or the other, and I say it to everyone listening tonight, one way or the other, each of us are going to have to deal with this final word from Jesus tonight. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, for forgiveness of sins. And thank you, Lord, that you would even dare to come and reveal yourself to us. And I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and understand what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.